Good evening. God bless you. Thank you, Daddy, for those opening thoughts. It's definitely a good um, precursor to what I hope to share tonight. So welcome to those of you who weren't here last night. I'm glad to see it looks like about twice as many people here as what was here yesterday evening. I thought Shade Mountain was a little bigger, last I remembered. So thank you for those of you who came last night and for everyone who came again tonight. I thought we could start with a little bit of a review from last night's session. So we did a little bit of an introduction to the book of Hebrews, and we unpacked briefly what I would suggest are three themes within the book of Hebrews. Started out by asking if anyone else had an idea of what, if they would have to summarize and wrote these on the board, what is the theme of Hebrews? And we had a few really good answers. Um, Brother Jake said, the book of better things, and uh, that can be unpacked. Further, we talked about that a little bit last night. Uh, Daniel said the importance of a bodily sacrifice. And Brother Emmanuel said, um, help me remember, Brother Emmanuel, where are you at? I'm sorry? Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Yes, excellent. So the three themes that I highlighted last night, I'm going to, uh, actually, Arlen, would you mind passing out the paper that we had from last night for anyone that wasn't here. So there was an extra stack left over there. And if we could have those passed out, just flag your hand as he comes up through and he'll pass those out. So I think we probably have enough from last night. Kinley had made probably 50 copies and I think about half of them are left over. Thank you. So if anyone didn't get one last night, you're welcome to take one now. And one thing I told the class last night is that the first time I had the privilege of teaching through the book of Hebrews was in a Bible school setting with a bunch of youth, and I hadn't asked Jared ahead of time if this was okay, but I told the adults here that we're going to give you a homework assignment every night, and I asked him right on the fly if that's okay, and he said yes. Well, what else is he supposed to say? But um, we did give a homework assignment last night, and hopefully those of you who were here had a chance to work on that. So I told the group here last night that one of my favorite, over here on this side, we have some hands then too, Arlen. One of my favorite teachers in Bible college was a teacher that one of his grading system methods was to have all of us go home, do the homework, and then he would randomly ask two or three of us and be recording in his grade book the next day, Joel, would you stand and read what you wrote about this particular chapter, an observation or a question? And if you didn't have anything written down, you never knew when your name was going to be called, that was 25% of your grade. So you might get a 75 at the end of the semester, even if you got 100 and everything else. So you really needed to make sure you had that daily classwork done. I thought that was an ingenious, ingenious way of keeping all of us uh, tracking with and engaged in the material. So I think we're going to start with the homework from last night. And first of all, I told everyone I'd like if we were working on memorizing Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, which is a prologue to the rest of the book. What is a prologue? It's basically an introduction. All three of the themes that we're going to be unpacking throughout the book of Hebrews in these next few nights are found very clearly articulated within these first four verses. They're at least alluded to, if not expressed, and then unpacked further later. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I'd like if someone could quote that for us, please. And we'll take someone from both sides. So if you don't get the whole way through, that's fine. Maybe you're still working on it. But uh, who would be first from the brother's side? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. 
If you can only quote verses 1 and 2, that's okay. Go as far as you can. Okay. Thank you, Brother Emmanuel. Excellent. First two verses, that's a very good start. Anyone from the sisters' side want to see how far you can get in quoting Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4? Okay, we'll give you another chance tomorrow night. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is your memory selection. Okay, from reading chapters 2 through 4. Who wants to give me an observation or a question that you wrote down or something you saw from Hebrews 2, 3, or 4 from the reading selection that we assigned as homework? We can either take volunteers or I can call nominations. We'll start with volunteers for tonight. We'll be easy on you. Go ahead, Brother Jake. Thank you. It's beautiful. Okay, we'll take two from both sides. Someone else from the men's side. Something you noticed as a question or observation from Hebrews 2, 3, or 4. Chapter 2, verse 8. Okay. How can everything be put under man's feet, but not yet? Okay, thank you. How can, it says that we see not yet all things put under him, but originally... Uh, God created man to have dominion over all things. Fascinating subject. Uh, Daniel, maybe you have a comment as you've been thinking about that. If you don't, that's fine. Okay. Someone else care to comment on that. Verse 8 says, quoting from the psalmist, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that was not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him but we see Jesus. Anyone want to comment on that? If not, we'll keep going and maybe come back to it. There's an echo of the kingdom of God in there and that we enjoy life in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not in its entirety yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have humanity. Our humanity is still sin in the world. Mm-hmm. So there's an echo of that in that. Okay, excellent. I think of the song, This Is My Father's World. And uh, the last verse says, Though the wrongs seem off so strong, he is the ruler yet. This is my father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. There's a, a coming of everything being put back together the way God originally intended it to be that we don't fully see yet, but it's coming. Thank you. Anyone from the sister's side? Maybe we'll just take one from the sister's side, a comment or a question from Hebrews chapter 2, 3, or 4.
Hmm. Okay. So Jesus was made, thank you, a little lower than the angels. That is a tribute to his humanity. And in order for him to taste death for every man, that was necessary. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Someone else have a comment? We'll pause briefly if you do. Okay, that's fine. So tomorrow night be ready. And I'll probably call some names tomorrow night who haven't spoken up yet. I think it'd be nice if, for the sake of those who weren't here, we could quickly go back and look at the blanks from the page that we had filled in yesterday. This will only take a couple of minutes. So I started out by saying there's a very high chance that Paul authored, or at least co-authored the book. Someone tell me, Greek scholars tend to feel that Paul did not write the book because the blank of the author's ability to handle Greek surpasses those of the other letters. The what? Skillfulness. Skillfulness. Okay. There's a level of Greek used in this letter that is better than normal Pauline style. Okay, number one, the theology of Paul, or at least a very close acquaintance of Paul, bleeds through an unmistakable clarity on almost every page. Number two, in the setting of the book, written from blank, who remembers what that was? Rome, okay. The closing salutation says, from Italy, the day of Italy salute you. That was, that's modern day Rome. Uh, acquaintance with Timothy, Know that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. Um, down to number three, the blank of the book within the canon. Who wants to tell us what the blank is there? Um, we are looking at number three, the blank of the book within the canon by the early church. It starts with a P. Placement. placement. The placement of the book within the canon. So we have the Gospels, we have Acts, we have the Pauline Epistles, and then right after Philemon, which is the last one we know for sure is written by Paul, comes Hebrews. Number four, the title of the book follows Pauline tradition. Um, in other words, the, the title bears not the name of the author, like Matthew, Mark, or Luke, nor the name of what he's writing about, like Acts or the, the Revelation, but actually, as other Pauline Epistles, it bears the name of the audience, Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, etc. Uh, number six, the author of the book of Hebrews was an acquaintance of the who? Apostles. Apostles, okay. Chapter two says that uh, it was confirmed unto us by those that heard him, so he was at least an acquaintance of the apostles, but not an apostle himself. Did you miss number five? Uh, I said, I'm sorry, I did. Thank you. We know that Paul had a great passion that his own... Hebrew background people. Thank you, Emmanuel. Okay, moving on. The audience, the Hebrew audience that the apostle writes to here appears to be living in a post-book of Acts, Jerusalem, before its fall. And then down to the next blank, the book does not bear the author's intended audience in any type of greeting. And under approximate date, the writing of the book of Hebrews seems to have taken place before the destruction of Jerusalem and possibly as a prophetic What? Warning, thank you. So if it was written in 67 AD, in three years, Jerusalem would have fallen. Here we have no continuing city. Let us, we seek one to come. Let us therefore go forth unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. To leave at that time when the Romans' pressure was mounting would have been a reproachful thing for a Jew to do. The Jews that did escape were saved. Those who did not were actually uh, overthrown in the city, and there were many Christians who did escape before 70 AD, and thankfully they were not take, overtaken in the city. 
All right, uh, the last couple blanks here on the back page. The spoken message of God, the one who spake in time past, has he in the last days spoken unto us by his Son. He's the one that today yet speaketh. That's for the blank there in number one. Jumping down to number two. The superior ministry of Christ, superior to the ministry of the angels, greater than the ministry of Moses, and finally superior to the blank system of the Old Testament. Sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Number three yet, the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. This is the third theme, and I would argue it is the central theme. This is certainly the central theme of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10 kind of gives us what I would call a crescendo there when thinking about that theme. Okay. If we could have the paper passed out for tonight now. Uh, Whoever is in charge of that back there. We're going to look at theme number one of these three themes. So I found it interesting that already in our devotional period, we had a good rendition of this theme to kind of lay the foundation here for us. So I'll wait till you get those papers passed out, and then we'll start looking here at chapter 2. I'd actually like if we could read chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Last night we read chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Tonight, when you have your papers, we'll read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Prepare to look at this first theme. Again, this is the first of three themes spoken of in chapter 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake. God is a communicating God. So it jumps into this first theme now. In chapters 2, 3, and 4 is where this first prologue theme is really unpacked. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I'd like to invite you to stand again tonight for the reading of the word. Those of you of the King James Version will read together. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, we're remembering the first theme here. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first begun to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Thank you. You can be seated. Let's just pray. God, thank you tonight that we hold the blessing, the sacred privilege of having your word in our own language, and we can read all 66 books within the canon of Scripture. Father, I pray that as we look at Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 here tonight and think about the power of your spoken word, that the written word would become alive to us and that we could, by your Holy Spirit, understand and that we would have ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this first of the three themes, the spoken message of God, is clearly articulated in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. 
And there's three tenses here that the Hebrew writer uses throughout the book from chapter 1, actually through chapter 12, when he, think, when he speaks about the way God's word has come to us. God, the one who spake in time past, has spoken in these last days, and he is the one that today yet speaketh. That's the first blank there for this evening. That's a present tense call for us to be listening because God didn't just communicate in the past and now everything that he had to say has been said and there's nothing more to hear. No, the scripture that we heard earlier tonight, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, is still for us today. God is still the one who's communicating. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. Chapters 1 to 4. It's where we find this theme specifically emphasized, but the last time it's actually spoken is in chapter 12, where it says again, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. Our God is not some distant deity. You know, people talk about the difference between a theistic God or a deistic God. A deistic God would be one who's a foreign, a far-off uh, deity that maybe created the world and set it into motion and then sort of stepped back to see what would happen. We don't believe that that is the Jehovah God of the Bible. Actually, our God is a God who's very interested in communicating with us as his people. We see that throughout the scriptures. His message has come to humanity through both general and special revelation. And someone help me out here. General revelation is the witness of the blank of God. We see it all around us. Creation. The creation. Okay, the cre creation proclaims the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day utter speech. There's no speech nor language where that voice is not continually heard. That's general revelation. The universe is declaring for those who would see it, for those who have eyes to see, the glory of a creator who cannot be seen with physical human eyes. So the scripture says in John chapter 1 that there's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. In the book of Ecclesiastes it puts it this way, that God has set eternity in their hearts. There's something about us where we intrinsically know that there is a creator God. But that's just through general revelation. That general revelation is not enough to show us how to actually know that God, that loving God that we now know as a loving God because of his special revelation. But the general revelation of creation is enough to bring us to the knowledge of the truth of God's existence, but not enough to actually bring us into relationship with him. John chapter 1 goes on to say, The light shined in darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. That's God's special revelation. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake, that is special revelation, that's for the next blank. And that is what the Hebrew writer is referring to here. We know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that's special revelation. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The word of God is forever settled in heaven, it's eternal. Because of that, chapter 2 says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. We ought to, he that hath ears to hear, we ought to give the more earnest heed. We ought to sit up straight and pay attention. Give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time the enemy would come and snatch them away, lest at any time we should let them slip. So I was studying this today. I was over in Ben Pate's cabin. I was there all by myself. It was wonderful to just have some quiet time. I feel like I need that right now. And I started to feel like I'm going to get, yeah, I guess I'm going to say stir crazy if I don't do something physical. So I was looking around for a chin-up bar, and I went over. Those of you who have been to Ben Pate's cabin know he has these big high beams. They're probably about... I don't know, eight feet, maybe 
10 feet off the ground, and I couldn't jump and grab them, so I stuck a chair underneath, and I could just so get up and grab it to do my chin-ups, and I was chinning up with my feet swinging up to the ceiling. I had to think about it. Less than any time we should let them slip, and that, that scripture was on my mind. I thought, that's a great object lesson. If I would fall right now, no one's around, I could have broke my back, and no one would have even found me. So anyways, thankfully that didn't happen, but the object lesson is, less than any time we should let them slip, okay? I wasn't about to let go, because I knew it would have been very dangerous to do so. The scripture says here that we should give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we should let them slip. The scripture that we have, the word that we've been taught, the gospel of our salvation, can be snatched away. It can be something that we lose our grasp on, God forbid. So let's hold on, as it says in Hebrews chapter 3, steadfastly to the beginning of our confidence, firm unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. What is the phrase, and I had a little bit of a difficult time today trying to figure out if I wanted to use this phrase or another phrase to have our discussion question on. So I want to hear some feedback from you. What is the phrase from Hebrews chapter 2 here, um, verse 2, speaking about? It says, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, what is the word spoken by angels? Someone want to give me your opinion. If I would have given that as a study question for us to discuss together in groups, what would have you told the other people in your group you think that that is? Go ahead, Kenley. You look like you're about to say something. Uh, the Old Covenant Sinai uh, mediated by angels. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So there's two passages. Um, let's see, Elvin, could you read Acts chapter 7, verse 53? And Eugene, could you read... Galatians 3, verse 19. Let's check this out here and, and just verify that this word spoken by angels, there's some collaborating scriptures. So go ahead when your brothers have those ready. Okay. Is that Stephen speaking? I think so. All right. And then Paul from Galatians, chapter 3, verse 19. Okay, the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So that's a little mysterious, but apparently this was part of Jewish legendary folklore. They understood maybe that this was somehow not only given by Moses, but it was also, I mean, Stephen referred to it as if it was something they should have known. So did Paul, that somehow there was an angelic company that helped to be the mediation of delivering God's law on Mount Sinai. The scripture doesn't clearly unpack that back in the Old Testament, but both Paul and Stephen reference it, and it's referenced against here, again here in Hebrews chapter 2, that this was the word spoken by angels. I don't know how that looked. I was trying to meditate on that some today and think about it. You know, how was it? Didn't, didn't they hear God speaking? Um, they said that they heard the voice of the trumpet, and it waxed louder and louder. Where did the angels come in? The scripture doesn't tell us. But somehow the Old Testament law was by the... Uh, as it says here, hand of angels brought down to man. Exodus 20, verse 1, God spake all these words, saying, and then he I know, yeah. So where do the angels come in? It's, it's interesting. Somehow from, thank you, Daniel, somehow from the book of Acts and Galatians, 
I would agree with Kinley and put that together. If it wouldn't be for Acts and Galatians, I would be thinking that possibly it's the word that was spoken by angels who were in rebellion and were carried away, and they're now no longer able to find a way of salvation, though they would desire to look into it, as Hebrews or as Peter says. But um, with the collaborating scriptures there, it does seem that it is part of the revelation that was brought to them. Okay, in, in chapters 3 and 4, we are told three times, Today, if you will hear his voice... So it's a question, it's not a given. If you will hear his voice, then harden not your heart. Let's have somebody read for us Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 11 at this time. If you could read it loud and clear so everybody can hear. Uh, Maybe Chester, could you read Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 11, please? Okay, so this passage from the book of Psalms is referred to three times in the book of Hebrews, twice here in chapter 3, once in chapter 4, and it seems the Hebrew writer is reaching back into this psalm to help to highlight the importance of not being like the original Israelite audience who heard the word of God. They received Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. They received the word of God that was delivered to them through Moses and somehow with angelic accompaniment, and yet they died in the wilderness. And the psalmist comes along later and says, take heed, don't harden your hearts and be like that original audience. And the Hebrew writer is picking up on that. It seems like he's almost wanting to reprimand them a bit before he goes on and tells them what he really has to say to make sure they're going to be listening. Like, your forefathers didn't get it. They died in the wilderness. They even heard the word of God that came to them through Moses. So make sure you're paying attention. Okay, let's go on. General revelation allows mankind to see the mighty acts of God and understand something of his power, but it takes special revelation for us to know him personally, to know his glory and the display of the excellence of his blank. So this is a a definition of glory that I've gotten from from John D. Martin. He says that the glory of God is the display of the excellence of his, somebody know? Character. So the character of God displayed with full glory, that is one way that we can see the nature, the beauty, the excellence of who God is. So it takes knowing him personally, this special revelation for us to see this character, this name of God. Psalms 103, and speaking about the account of where God made his glory known to Moses, says this, he made known his ways unto Moses, so let's just stop right there, they have not known my ways, the psalmist says, but Psalms 103 says, he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. So is this just Hebrew poetry where you use parallelism and you're saying the same thing in two different ways? Those are actually two different things going on here. I think it's actually the latter. There's two different things going on. The children of Israel saw the glory of God come down on the mountain. They heard the sound of the trumpet. They probably felt the earth shake. And they were not interested in knowing or seeing anything more. Moses, though, said, as he was there on the mountain before the Lord, I beseech thee, show me thy way that I may know thee. 
Moses didn't just want to see the mighty acts of God. He wanted to know the character, the nature of God. And God spoke with him and drew him into a relationship as a man speaks with his friend. So, how do we come to know the ways of God? Not just like the children of Israel. An ox could have seen the mountain smoking and been afraid and could have felt the earth tremble. But God has given us hearts that when we're truly alive and we're as God created us to be, like Moses was, we'll want to actually know him as our creator. Then God caused his glory to pass by and we know the account there. He proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. So that blank there is Moses prayed, show me now thy way that I may know thee. And God allowed him, God granted him that request graciously. So we need more than theological facts about God. We must come to actually know him in a personal way. That takes special revelation the end of the book of Joshua and the beginning of the book of Judges, we read that there arose another generation after them, after Joshua's generation, that knew not the Lord, nor the mighty works that he had done for Israel. So there's two different things going on there. They knew not the Lord, nor the mighty works. They, men like Joshua and Caleb, personally saw and experienced the power of God. So they saw God send down hailstones on their enemies. They saw God open up the Jordan River and the Red Sea as they marched around the walls of Jericho, they saw those walls collapse and they felt the thunder, I'm sure, of the, the weight as those walls hit the ground. These were men who had been on conquest for the glory of God into Canaan and they knew him because they needed him personally. And the challenge for all of us is will we be like the children of Israel who were just okay as long as they had some quail and manna and some water to just do their own thing? Or would we be like Joshua and Caleb and Moses and others that actually knew the Lord? Caleb said, give me this mountain. Joshua wasn't content to just stay in the camp. He journeyed with Moses up the mountain. Some, the Hebrew writer says, when they had heard did provoke, howbeit not all they that came out of Egypt by Moses. Blank and blank said, their defense is departed from them and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Who were those two men that said that? Joshua and Caleb. So, some when they had heard did provoke, howbeit not all. There were at least two that made it into the land of Canaan. Joshua and Caleb. Only two men, only two men of that first generation entered the promised land. Let us therefore fear. You can turn the page. Chapter 4 tells us, considering this, that only two actually made it. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So, they heard the Ten Commandments. They heard the Deuteronomy blessings and cursings. Blessed will be the one who obeys the commands of God, and he'll be blessed in the field, and his... Uh, everything that he has will be blessed and God will command his blessings so it will overtake him at the time of the earring and the harvest, all those blessings, and then cursed to be the man. They heard those blessings and cursings. They saw the glory of God come down in the tabernacle. They saw the blood of the lamb that was slain yearly. We read about that in the book of Hebrews, how the priest went into the holy of holies once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. They knew this gospel. They saw it. And yet they didn't have hearts because of a lack of faith that really understood. 
And so I've drawn this little diagram here that I'd like us to, to look at as we think about the difference between a heart that hears his voice and responds in faith versus a heart that is hardened. So on the left-hand side, we have a receptive heart. That's the good soil that we heard about tonight. On the right-hand side, we have a hardened heart, a heart that's not actually good soil. On the left-hand side, we have word mixed with faith. On the right, word not mixed with faith. On the left, again, we have fruitfulness. Some bring forth 30, 60, 100-fold. Again, the difference is faith. On the right, we have barrenness. On the left, a promised land of rest. On the right, wilderness wanderings. Life and death. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The fulcrum upon which these blessings and cursings actually, according to this passage, seem to rise and fall. The difference is faith in the spoken word of God. Faith in the word of God. Is that next blank? So, what does it look like to express or have faith in the word of God. Hebrews 11 unpacks that for us. It reminds us that faith is extremely important in the economy of God's kingdom. By faith, the patriarchs pleased God and did great exploits. It's the fulcrum upon which our spiritual lives will rise or fall. Faith in the word of God. I thought of that song, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The last verse of that song, and one of the verses in the song, I didn't look it up here today, uh, says, What more can he say than to you who he has said, who unto the Savior for refuge have fled? Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand. And then there's a verse, I'm not quite catching it, but it says, um, The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I'll never, no, never desert to his foes. Uh, that's actually really interesting how it puts that. I think the songwriter, I don't know, Jake, I can remember you leading that song 20 years ago when I was a young person. I can still hear you lead that song. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. Um, in studying Greek, I learned that there's a triple negative in Hebrews 13 where that promise is given. What that means is when it says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In the Greek language that that was written, it's not only like I will never leave you, it's like I will never, never, never leave you. And so when the songwriter, I think he probably knew Greek, said, um, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake, I think he actually knew that and was actually quoting the Hebrew text. Uh, that verse is from Hebrews chapter 13. It says, as the Lord has said, I will never leave thee, nor will I forsake thee, something to that extent. So how can we stand in the storms of life? How will we actually be able to have a firm foundation? It's when we anchor our faith in the word of God. That's what the Hebrew writer is challenging us with here. By faith, these Hebrews 11 characters, Noah being warned of God. So he heard special revelation. That's what caused him to act. Noah moved with fear, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. So it was because of the word of God that Noah built a boat. And the difference between Noah and the people around him was simply the fact that Noah not only heard God's word, which they did as well, he warned them, but Noah did something about it. His faith declared that he was actually a man who believed that what God had said would happen is going to happen. Therefore, I'm going to do something about it. Sarah, the same way, by faith received strength to conceive seed. Um, when she was past age, I don't know that I would have personally. Uh, God, 
knew that she did. I wouldn't have personally put Sarah in the faith chapter. She laughed, but yet somehow she must have come back full circle and learned to embrace the promise that, yes, I will have a baby. It says she judged him faithful that had promised. And so by faith, Sarah is listed there in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham went out into a place that he should have to receive for an inheritance. So the scripture tells us in Genesis 12 that the Lord told him, get thee out of thy father's house from thy kindred and go into a place that I will show you. And so he didn't even know where he was going. And yet God was leading him and by faith he went out. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. This is a list of people that we have to look at and see, okay, so these are people who cashed in their lives. They laid everything on the line and said, if God has called me to do this, doesn't matter what comes, I'm going to obey. And we can see on this side of history how it actually turned out for them. Did they all end their lives with glory? Absolutely not. But there was a glory that was coming for them. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and embraced them. So Hebrews 12, verse 25, brings us back full circle, saying, See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not, they refused him that spake on earth, that's from Mount Sinai, how shall we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? The apostle here is calling us to recognize that we have a greater revelation, a more sure word of prophecy that is coming to us now today, and we do well to take heed. Okay, here's a discussion question I would like for us to take some time to meditate on here. It comes from Hebrews chapter 4. I'd like to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 here for you, and then we'll discuss this question in order to get the context. So listen closely. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, or in the Psalms, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua, or Jesus, had given them rest, then would he not have afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. In other words, it's still coming. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And when I say, in other words, it's still coming, that means that the children of Israel didn't actually get to experience the true rest that was being promised. 
Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have spoken of another day. In other words, if it was already fulfilled that they were finding the Canaan rest and that was all that was to be found, then in the book of David, which was post-Joshua, he would not have spoken of another day. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, but rather enter into this place of rest. So it's a very interesting argument he's making in here. And I'd like us to, to think about together, how do we understand the paradox of verse 11? Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. How can we obey this command? So we're going to do briefly what we did here last night. I'm going to have you all stand. Let's go ahead and stand. And you can find two or three people right around you. And I'd like you to discuss that question. Find some parallel passages. Think about what it could mean for us to labor to enter into that rest. I'll give you just a couple minutes. Okay, it's about time to wrap it up. Okay, we heard some good discussion. I'd like to hear from a couple of you in your groups what you decided. What does it mean to labor to enter into that rest? Who would like to speak up first from either side here? I heard some lively discussion. Daddy, what did your group decide? Well, it's not a contradiction in terms. 
<laughs> okay. Go ahead. Mm. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Abe. Appreciate that. Anyone else? There was a lively discussion in your group, Kenley. Go ahead. What did you all talk about? Uh, Manuel would have, I think, convinced us that. Uh, <laughs> Okay. So you say he convinced your group? You still sound a little uncertain. <laughs> okay. Thank you. We need faithfulness and obedience. Okay. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Along the same lines as working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Let's, let's turn to the song number 381. There's two songs that have, I believe, uh, kind of struck at the heart here of what the author is attempting to communicate. Number 381, and then if we have time, we'll flip over. And I, I don't want to sing all four verses just for sake of time, but let's sing the first two verses of 381. And let's think about the fact that it says, there remains therefore a rest to the people of God, and what does it look like for us to press into that even here and now? The violent take the kingdom by force. Jesus said, come unto me, and sometimes there's things in the way that have to be pushed out of the way. I'm pressing on the upward way. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's stable land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher up and let me stand by faith on heaven 
stable land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Let's flip over to 774. Love divine, all loves excelling. Love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth, come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling. All thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Breathe, O oh, breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find thy promised rest. Take away the love of sin. Alpha and Omega be, and of faith as its beginning, set our hearts at liberty. We head back to our seats. Thank you so much.